Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Just the gift that it is to us, we pray that, that you would be honored now, that you would be worshipped as we're moving into studying your word, uh, that the honor we give to your word and the things you have to say would be a form of worship. And so please speak to us. God, teach us all. We want to hear your voice and, and grow closer to you. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we find ourselves in the book of Romans. Uh, tonight we're going to be covering chapters 7 and 8. And we've said it before, but we'll say it again. Um, Romans is unique among the books that Paul writes because he's writing to a church that he doesn't know at this point. He doesn't know the people there. He doesn't have uh, the, the connection that he would have with a lot of the other churches. And so because of that, he doesn't have to say, hey, here's an answer to the questions you sent or here's the solution to the problem you have. He's much more free to say, hey, basically, hey, uh, I heard you guys are doing well as a church. Just thought I'd write you a letter, say I'm hoping to come visit you. And along the way, I just thought it'd be nice to reflect for a little bit on what the gospel is and who Jesus Christ is and how that impacts our life. And so really, that's what we have in the book of Romans. We got in a letter from Paul saying, hey, um, but Paul could say, hey, really well. So Romans basically divides into basically four big ideas that Paul's going to cover in Romans. And the first is chapters 1 through 5. And in that, he's going to examine the idea of our sinfulness and our relationship to God and to, to the rules of God. And in chapters you know, 1 and 2, he says, look, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's unrighteous people and self-righteous people, and neither of them live up to the standards that God sets. In chapter 3, he goes further and basically says, look, because of that, God is just in saying that we're all sinners. And then chapters 4 and 5, he's going to explain, yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we're all guilty before God. But no, that doesn't mean there's no hope. No, what it means is the goodness of God is now revealed. The grace of God is revealed because God has now offered us the gift of salvation. He's now just, he sent Jesus Christ to pay the price for our sins. But uh, not, so it's not a, it's not a, free gift in the sense of, you know, it's not like passing out a business card where there's no value and you take it or maybe throw it away or maybe not. No, it's a, it, there's a cost associated with the gift, but there's nothing required for you to receive it. And then chapter 6, 7, and 8, he's going to go into this idea of, well, okay, wait a second. So we're talking about the grace of God. So what should, you know, and, and he says in the end of chapter 5, look, where sin abounded, the grace of God superabounded. The grace of God was so present to to demonstrate his sufficiency to cover our sins. So the question is then, well, should we sin so that there's grace? And he's going to say, chapter 6, verse 2, certainly not. Of course not. He's going to say, no, grace is not, okay, hey, I got myself covered, so now I'm free to do what I want. Grace is, hey, what kind of gift would that be? What kind of God gives a gift like that to cover my sins? take them away. I want to know that God more. I want to draw closer to him. Grace is not an opportunity to walk in sin. Grace is the chance to walk in holiness. It's the gift. It's, it's, you, know, it's an, you can think of it as an acronym. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And it is the full richness of God that comes in and makes us righteous, makes us holy in the eyes of God. And so grace causes us to say, okay, I want to live my life in response to what God has done. So chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul's going to describe how that happens. We'll get through that tonight. Uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to address, okay, we're talking about grace. We've been talking a lot about how the law is now complete, and it's not what we're serving under because we're under grace. So what does that do to the Jewish people? Where does that leave us as Christians to interpret 
how the promises of God apply to them. We're going to do that next week. And then as the book wraps up, he gives just super practical instruction for here's how a church ought to operate. Here's how you, as citizens of an earthly, uh, of an, you know, of an earthly planet, but citizens of a heavenly kingdom, ought to conduct yourselves. Here's basic guidelines for how you ought to fellowship with one another and interact with each other. And then he wraps up and basically says, yeah, by the way, I'm going to come visit you guys when I get a chance. And so tonight, though, we find ourselves in chapter 7 and 8. But we said last week, you know, the chapter markers were not put there originally. They are put there hundreds of years after the Bible was written so that as a church, we could say, go to Romans chapter 7 verse 1, and you could all get there. It's a lot easier than if I say, go to the part where Paul's talking about marriage, and he's drawn that comparison between marriage and, and the law of God. That'd be a little bit harder for us to kind of just collectively be like, oh, I know where he's at, you know? Uh, chapter 7, verse 1 is, is nice, and like, I know where it's at. But it can sometimes throw us off if we're not ready for it, because it can make us think, oh, chapter 7, verse 1, obviously we're starting something fresh, and we're not. We are very much tonight carrying over from what we covered last week, and so before we dive into se- chapter 7, let's back up just a little bit. Look at chapter 6. We've got to remember a couple things. Paul says in chapter 6, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And then he goes on in chapter 6, verse 6. He says, you've got to remember, our old man was crucified so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He says, look, God delivered you from death. You're the the lies and the slavery that you were in bondage to, that old person that you were before Christ set you free, that person died on the cross in a very real sense with Christ. So if you choose to take the grace of God as an opportunity to walk in sin, then really, in a sense, you're trying to resurrect something that God already put to death. You say, hey, I know you put it to death, but man, it'd just be fun to do it, pull it out one more time, right? Um, and then he's going to go on in, in uh, verse 16. He says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one slaves whom you obey. He says, look, if you present yourself to, to be a slave of sin, you're going to be a slave of sin. If you invite yourself to walk in compromise, guess what's going to happen in your life? You'll be compromised. But if you present yourself to God, if you present yourself to the holiness of God, not by, which, not by making yourself awesome, but by the grace of God as a response of, hey, God has done something incredible in my life. I want to respond to it well then you're going to be walking in holiness. And then as he's wrapping up chapter 6, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So what fruit did you have when you were walking in sin? Death. That's what you had. That's what we all had when walking in sin. But now, verse 22, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. What's your fruit now? Holiness. What's your fruit now? Everlasting life. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you walk in sin, if you walk with the old man, the person who you were before you became a new creation, you're going to earn something, and it's death, and it will be well earned. There is, you know, death is not an unfair result of what we experience. It is a very just reality. There's, and it's, you know, there is a very physical death that we're all going to experience unless the Lord comes back. But there's also just death in general, right? If you choose to walk in sin, there's going to be a death in a relationship. A death of integrity results in breaking off ties. You know, death of just companionship. The, 
death of all those things that we like and hold on to, right? We pursue what we think will give us happiness outside of Christ, and it will always bring death. And so with that context, Paul jumps in chapter 7. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she's married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So he's using a metaphor here that we can all wrap our heads around pretty well. He's, you know, he's trying to, okay, what's the thing basic that we understand? Marriage, we all understand what marriage is. Even in a culture that's confused, we still have an understanding. Here's what marriage is. We understand a couple of things. If a woman's husband dies, she's free to remarry. If she's still married to her husband and she starts acting like she's married to another man, there's a problem, right? And that's, that's what Paul's saying. Look, if the first husband dies, she can do whatever she wants. She can marry whoever she wants. That's her call. If her first husband is alive, she is bound to that husband in a, in a moral sense. And so he's using this illustration to say, look, when you were under the law, when you were trying to say, hey, you know, I'm either unrighteous or I'm self-righteous. When you were, you know, there was a standard of holiness that you either made up or thought you needed to live by. There was, that was the law. You were under that and Jesus came and set you free from that. So that was, in a sense, you were, it's like you were married to the law. You were, you were stuck to the law because if you walked away from it, you were guilty, right? If you said, no, look, there's a moral law and lying is wrong, and then you said, no, I changed my mind, it's not wrong, then you're breaking a moral law that you set in place. And so it's like you're tied to it, and you can't get out of it. And he says, but look, that husband died. In chapter 6, verse 6, he says, our old man was crucified that the body of sin might be done away with. He says, look, your old husband died, and now you are free, in a sense, to be married to Christ. You're free to have a freedom of relationship. We're not now under, we're not married to rules. We're married to a person, right? It's not, we're no longer in a system. We're in a relationship. And so that's where he's going to go. So, and he's carrying this out as the idea of, okay, remember, chapter 7 is part of chapter 6, 7, and 8. He's carrying this out as the idea of, should we walk in sin? No. Grace is not freedom to walk in sin. Grace is the opportunity to walk in righteousness. So he goes on, verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So he's just carrying that idea out. Now he's going to go on a little further. He's going to basically say, okay, let's back up just real fast and say, is the law sinful? We covered this a couple weeks ago, so we're going to kind of move through this. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And it's a rhetorical question, so Paul gives us the answer. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. 
For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment, holy and just and good. So Paul's addressing this issue. He says, okay, look, I'm not saying that everything that God wrote in the Old Testament is bad. He says, no, certainly not. What am I saying? I'm saying that it demonstrates how bad I am. The law is not bad. As a matter of fact, the law is perfect, right? If you walked perfectly in the law, your life would be wonderful, right? The law says, do not covet. If nobody in this room ever had a covetousness problem, our lives would be so much simpler, wouldn't they? If nobody, if, this, if the entire country that we live in just all of a sudden said, you know what, covetousness is just wrong. We're just done with it. We've had it, you know, up to here with covetousness. We're moving forward. If, no, if we all quit coveting, it'd be great. How much more if we kept all the law of God, right? It would be a perfect world. So he's saying, look, the law is great. The law is holy. Uh, the, but he says, the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Because what the law does is force me to come to grips with, oh, here's when God talks about holiness, here's what he's talking about. And I'm not there. When God's talking about holiness, oh my gosh, now I have to realize and own the fact that I am not just missing the mark, I am so far below. I am actually walking in death. And so there's where he's going. He says, verse 13, and we're going to sort of read... We're going to read verse 13 through 20. It's, it's kind of a long chunk, and it, sometimes the way it reads uh, can be a little hard, but we'll read it and then go back and break it down a little bit. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. He's repeating the idea from the last paragraph. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. If you're reading it and it's kind of hard to track, switch out the word will with the word want. Uh, It's kind of a little bit less formal, but it's the same idea basically, right? For wanting to do the right thing is present with me, but I don't do it. So the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I want to not do, I do. And Paul's describing here the problem that really we all run into sooner or later. But, the, but some of us can park here. And sometimes you can park here for a day. Sometimes you can park here for decades. And that is this. You can get to a point where you say, okay, I understand Romans 1 and 2 and 3, right? I'm a sinner, Absolutely. Four and five, I understand God's grace is there. Chapter six, I understand that I shouldn't be walking in sin. And then chapter seven hits, and okay, so what do I do about it? And Paul's at this breaking point where he's like, okay, look, I know the right thing to do. I'm just not doing it. 
I know what I should be doing, and I'm not doing it. I know what I should not be doing, and I am doing it. I have these moments where I can look at sin and say, I know this is wrong. I know this is going to hurt me or hurt people around me. I know that if I do it, it will be fun for a couple seconds, and then I'm going to be walking in guilt, and, and the guilt will be overwhelming, but I'll do it anyways. And you can walk in this frustration, and you can just keep it going of, my gosh, I want to do the right thing, but it's just not happening. But if you read this paragraph, there's a couple of things that are really interesting. What is the most common phrase in here? I do. This paragraph is all about what I do. Right? Paul's, Paul is talking about a frustration that happens in Christianity when it becomes about what are you doing? Are you doing enough for God? Are you doing enough good things? And, he, and, he's, and he's running into this brick wall of, I will never do enough, but I'm still frustrated because I know that I should be doing more. There's a couple other words that are missing, though. Grace is nowhere in that paragraph. Christ is nowhere in that paragraph. Paul's describing a frustration that happens to a lot of us when what happens? When we know we shouldn't walk in sin, and so what happens? We shift from, okay, Romans 4 and 5, God has given us his grace, he's justified us, he's given us the righteousness of Christ, now I need to do something. And... Am I doing this because of Christ and because of grace, or am I doing this because it's what I do? And we can find ourselves super frustrated, right? When it's like, I know people who aren't even Christians who are nicer than I am. I know people who are doing better things than I am, and I'm just stuck in this point of constant frustration. So he goes on, verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Evil's right here with me, the person who wants to do the good thing. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So I, I love the law of God. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is not being uh, dramatic here, I don't think. Paul is describing the agony of a human soul who knows, who has tasted the righteousness of God and is now frustrated because they are trying to attain it on their own and they can't. And that is a horribly depressing place to be. So he says, I'm a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. What does he do? He takes his mind back to Christ, back to the Lord. And now he's going to jump into Romans 8. Romans 8 <clears throat> is uh, a lot of theologians, a lot of, a lot of teachers and, and scholars would say it's probably one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, which is a fairly bold claim. So uh, it's a little, I wouldn't necessarily peg one chapter as the top. But Romans 8 is one of the most significant chapters you're ever going to come to in the Bible because it deals with this, it's the answer to this question. Okay, what do you do with the frustration when you know God has called me to a standard, he has saved my soul, I'm still here in a physical body, and I am not meeting the standard God has set for me? Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what's the first thing we've got to know? Paul brings it back from here's what I do, here's what I do, here's what I do, to who's going to deliver me? Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is going to deliver us from this, we've got to understand something. There's no condemnation. 
right? Lisa Perry was talking about it during announcements on Sunday. It doesn't matter if you've had an abortion. It doesn't matter if you've had an affair. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've accepted the Lord, if you've asked the Lord to cleanse your sins, he has cleansed them. He hasn't cleansed most. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't said, well, let's give it a six-month probationary period. He's cleansed them. He's taken them away. They're gone. For verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul's going to give us the answer here in Romans chapter 8. The answer to Romans chapter 7, the answer to all the frustration is what do you do? You walk in the spirit. We walk according to the spirit of God. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does it look like when we walk according to the spirit of God? Well, here's what it means. It means you're letting the spirit of God do the working. It's no longer, here's what I do, here's what I'm trying to do, here's what I can't do or ought to do or should do. It's, hey, the Spirit of God is directing my heart. The Spirit of God is, is driving this ship. He's steering, you know, use your vehicle metaphor of choice, right? He's steering this thing or driving this thing or piloting this, whatever. Uh, he's, he's now in charge. If, you, if we get to a point of, hey, I understand that I'm sinful. I understand God's grace. I understand that I shouldn't walk in sin and now I'm, I'm in charge of the show. We're, we're dooming ourselves. But if it's, hey, I understand I'm sinful. I understand God has given me his grace. I understand because of that, I'm now just, and he sees me as righteous and holy. I understand because of that, I shouldn't go presenting myself to sin. And I understand because of that, he is offering the gift of his Holy Spirit to give me the power to do that. That's what Romans 8 is going to be all about. For verse 5, for those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So life in the Spirit is not, is about, it's not about, oh my gosh, I got to, you know, don't think about that thing or, or do think about that thing. It's, hey, what does the Spirit want to do today? And there's a guy I know, he says, you know, I wake up every morning and say, God, what do you want to do today? Because the answer is yes. Right? And, and that's just a, a great attitude to have of, of, okay, you know what? I don't know what the Spirit's going to tell me to do. But this is no longer about what I do or what I want. This is about what does the Spirit of God want to do in my life? Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's saying, look, if you're doing this in your own strength, you will not please God. It's impossible. You can't, you can't respond to God's righteousness by trying to be awesome and please God. It just isn't going to happen. So just in that paragraph, okay, and Romans 8 is just, theologically, it's huge, the amount of things that are in here to unpack are just massive, okay? But just real fast, as, as we're kind of trying to catch highlights. In that paragraph, what? There is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, if you're not saved, there's still condemnation. There is still the judgment of God. So make sure you're in Christ Jesus. But what do you do then? You walk in the Spirit, verses 3 and 4. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit, verse 5. Now, moving on, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So he's saying here, and this is important, we're going to break this down a little bit. He's saying, look, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. 
Okay, the Spirit of God is in you. That's the definition of being a Christian, is the Spirit of God has come into you and, and cleansed your soul. But, verse 10, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so here's, basically here's where he's going. He says, look, if Christ is in you, the body's dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And so we said, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is in you, right? The Spirit of God has come into your heart, cleansed your soul. But here's the thing. We can sometimes say, gee, thanks for saving my soul. I'll take it from here. And the Spirit of God can still be in us in the sense that we're saved, but not in us in the sense that we're walking in a vibrancy in our life. And so he says, look, you know, the body can be dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So you can, you can, you know, I'm going to heaven, I know I'm saved, but man, there's just an awful lot of stumbling and falling down and walking in sin and trying not to sin and, and all of Romans 7. And there's things that I want to do and I'm not doing them, the things that I want to not do and I am doing them. And it's like, this, it's like my, my soul is alive, my body is just like dying from sin. But verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we can sometimes let the Holy Spirit into our hearts enough to get us saved and then say, I'll take it from here. But Paul is describing a different kind of relationship. Okay, if you're saved, the Spirit of God is in you. That does not necessarily mean that the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, I don't know that off the top of my head, I looked it up today. So, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And when he says be filled, there's a couple things there. He's talking about uh, a constant overflowing, like keep on being filled over and over and over again. And so, this is what he's talking about here, right? When the Holy Spirit saves us, that's an event. That's, that's you, were say, you were lost in your sins and you are now saved for heaven, right? That's an event. But when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, it's a lifestyle, right? It, it, it's a journey. It's not one point. It's I am now letting the Holy Spirit dwell in me. And when that happens, what's he say? The Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. If you're just saved and you're rocking your own show from here on out, your, your body's going to be dead. There's going to be a death in your maturity, a death in your growth. There, things are just going to come to a crawl. But if the Spirit is dwelling in you, he's saying there's life in your mortal bodies. There can be life and vibrancy and victory and abundance right now. We do not have to be saved and just hope that it will get better someday. We can walk in victory. We can have victory over our flesh right now. How? By letting the Spirit of God dwell. And if, and if you're looking for a biblical example, in Acts chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. 
Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So Paul comes to a church. These guys are believers. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He's not saying you guys aren't saved. But he's watching these Christians, and there's something just kind of missing, right? And he's like, I just got to ask here, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the power of the Holy Spirit? And they say, the what? He says, so what were you baptizing? Into John's baptism. John's baptism is a wonderful thing. The baptism of John is basically, hey, I'm a sinner. I want to let go of my sins. Baptism, water baptism is the, the symbol and the idea of, hey, I've got an old man and he wants, I want him to die and drown in the water and be raised to new life. Baptism is, is super essential. It's, it's a command in Scripture. It's an important part of what it means to be a Christian. But it's not the end journey. And so he's saying, look, that's great. These guys are saved. They're believers. But there's something missing. They've been baptized into John's baptism. But what did John say? He said, I'm baptizing you with water. But there's someone coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? It's one thing to drown the old man. It's another thing to set the new man on fire. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, right? And, 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 and I know, I probably don't even know how much I don't know, but whatever. Um, I know there's a lot of different backgrounds in this church. And so whenever people talk about the Holy Spirit, I know there's some varying experiences and you know, what does it mean? And is he talking about speaking in tongues? Is he talking about getting slain in the Spirit? Is he talking about, like, barking? Which I'm not. I don't believe in barking in the Spirit. Um, but, like, what exactly, you know, is this... You know, I went to a charismatic church once, and it was the weirdest thing I ever saw in my life. Um, you know, what exactly is he talking about? Well, here's what I'm talking about. Are you letting the Holy Spirit dwell in you? Is the Holy Spirit dwelling? And have you been baptized, you know, it's great to be baptized in, the, in John's baptism. The idea of repentance is super important. But have you been baptized with fire? It, it's one thing to let the old man die. It's another thing to watch the new man come to life. Is there life in your mortal bodies? And we got to ask ourselves that. And, and if we are stuck in Romans chapter 7, if what I do is frustrating me because I'm not doing the right thing, then you need to go to Romans 8 verse 10 and 11 and says, so the Spirit dwelling in me and giving life to my mortal body. Because the Spirit-filled life gives us victory today. It doesn't have to be, I'm looking forward to victory down the road when, 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 you know, when I get to heaven. It can be, I am having victory now. And so we're going to move on through the rest of the chapter. But he says, therefore, brethren, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You think the Spirit makes us heirs in all the richness of Christ. We talked about, you know, standing in grace 
is not an opportunity to walk in sin. It's an opportunity to grow deeper, to say, I want to know more about the kind of God who can offer that kind of holiness for free. So he says, look, you're heirs. The kind of holiness that we have access to, the kind of righteousness, the kind of joy and peace that we are invited into is the same level that God is offering, he says here, to, to Jesus Christ. And that's not to say we become God, that not at all. But in the same way that Christ has ascended and is holy, we can have that kind of holiness. We can have that purity of there is no sin in their life. There is no sin. When, when God is finished with us, there is no sin left, right? We don't become mostly purified. We're complete. And he says we are heirs of all of that richness in Christ. Verse 18, he's going to shift here just a little bit. Um, and this is important. Romans 8 is really sort of two things. One, it's how do we have, how does the Spirit help us have victory? And then it's also, in the second half, it's how does the Spirit help us in suffering, in hardship? And so here's where we're going to go. It's kind of going to go into this element of suffering in the context of being filled with the Spirit. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So basically, he's saying, look, a spirit-filled life is not necessarily going to mean an easy life. It's not going to mean everything falls into place. But what does it mean? It means, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not going to be worthy to even be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. So he's, he's making a switch here. And he's going to address suffering, and suffering is a real thing, right? There is a lot of pain in this world. There's a lot of pain in this room, okay? Suffering is real, but what, what's greater? The Spirit of God. And, and one of the things that's as frustrating or more frustrating than being stuck in Romans 7, where you're trying to do the right thing and feeling like there's no answers, is being stuck in the middle of suffering, in the middle of a hardship that maybe you didn't really feel like you deserved or just hit you out of the blue and feel like, I am not able to make sense of this. Well, the Spirit of God brings to mind the glory that's coming. And so he says, we're hoping. We still groan. This earth is still in pain. Life is still hard. But we are now waiting with hope. The Spirit is giving us not just victory, but also hope. Right? God is not, doesn't, his gifts are not either or. It's not you can have victory in this life or in heaven. It's, you can have them both. You can have victory in this life and there will still be pain. And for the pain, there is still the hope of a future. So verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
Remember in Romans 7, we said it's all about what I do? Look at this. Romans 8 is all about what the Spirit of God does. What's the Spirit doing for us? He's praying for us. It's kind of a nice thought, you know? Like, we were having this discussion earlier this week. Do you ever just give disclaimers in your prayers? Like, God, I'm going to ask this. This might be stupid, so if it is, just ignore it, right? I've, I've told that to God before. Like, if you want to just ignore it, that's cool. I finally have gotten to the point where I just figure he probably knows that he has the freedom to ignore it, being God. And so I don't give him too many disclaimers anymore. It's just kind of like, I'm going to ask for it. You're smarter than I am. If this is bad, you call the shots. But the Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit doesn't have to offer disclaimers, right? The Spirit of God is praying for you right now. For your soul, for your victory, for your suffering. The Spirit of God is praying. And he says, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That verse is one of the greatest promises in the Bible. But, but put it in context, right? It, it's always good if there's a verse that you come across that's just like, that looks great on a plaque, that you run into a bunch. It's always a good thing sometimes. Not, it's, it's always a good thing to put the verse in its context, right? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. It's a great verse. I love that verse. But in context, what's he saying? He's saying, hey, you're going to go be prisoners for seven decades. But I know the plans I've got for you. And there's a different level of, of weight and of depth of the promise of God when you see it in its context. So verse 28, he says, we know that all things work together for good. What's his context? We're suffering. His context is the earth is groaning in pain. The Spirit of God is praying for us because we don't even know what to pray. And we know that all things work together for good. That's a different level, right? And he's not saying, this is important, he's not saying that all things are good. There are bad things that happen. There are things that happen to you just because it's a sin-cursed world. But all things work together for good to those who love God. If you love God, whatever you are going through, God can work for good. And he wants to work it for good. Verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is a great verse. The sovereignty of God is what he's focusing on here. And we talk about, there's a pastor I listen to, all the time. He talks about this sovereignty responsibility spectrum. And we can sort of focus sometimes on like, you know, the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man. But the sovereignty of God is something that, if we're not careful, can sometimes make us uncomfortable, especially if we're action-oriented people. And, uh, and especially also because sometimes it gets taken out of context and used to justify things that it shouldn't be used to justify. But right here, we're talking about the sovereignty of God in a powerful way, and we need to remember it. Right? And, and it's good if you're talking to somebody who's just, hey, I can do whatever I want and God still loves me. That's a good time to talk about man's responsibility and know you can present yourself as a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. But if you're talking to somebody who is suffering, who's going through hardship, who's, who's just struggling to walk in victory, it's a good time to, to talk about God's sovereignty. And God is bigger than this. And so whom he knew, he predestined. God chose you. God know you, knew you before time began. 
and he knew you were going to accept him. And how does that work? I have no idea. Um, he's bigger, his brain is bigger than mine. Um, but he, he foreknew you. He predestined you. He conformed you to the image of his son. He shaped you. All these little ways that at the time just felt like coincidences when God was bringing you into his presence. And he conformed you. And then, oh, by the way, those whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified you. He made you righteous. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That one's interesting to me. Uh, I was listening to a guy this week. He pointed this out. Glorified is past tense. Right? God isn't, doesn't see time in the same way we do. So, and it's sort of one of these things about God that you just sort of, you don't wrap your head around, you just say, okay. But God sees us as glorified. Right now, God doesn't see you as, you know, he doesn't see me as, okay, I'm 26 years in to uh, however long life, and okay, you know, we're waiting to get to the last chapter, and what's going to happen, and who did it, and, and we're not, he's not, you know, trying to skip ahead to the end of the page and, and see what's there. He knows. When God sees you, he sees you right now in glory, perfected in heaven. And so, yes, he cares about your journey, but he also sees you finished. And so, the sovereignty of God, God saw you before it started, he, and he saw, sees you after it ends, and he's looking at all of that at the exact same time. I really have no idea how that works. But we can sometimes get in the middle of this, like, time-space continuum problem, where, okay, wait, oh my gosh, you know, am I gonna, ah, you know, what I, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm trying to walk in the Spirit, this isn't working, and, and what do I do? And God says, look, you're already, I see you glorified. I'm calling the shots. I see you perfected and finished and in heaven, in my presence right now. I don't know how he does it, but it's a really cool thought. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that? Everybody, actually, right? Everybody could be against you. It's, it's not, you know, again, read the verse in his context. He's talking about suffering. And so who could be against you? Well, the whole world, actually. You know, you could actually uh, become really unpopular. But the point is, is bigger than that. It's who can successfully be against you, right? Nobody. Uh, he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He says, look, God already gave you his son. What's left to hold back, right? Anything else God gives you at this point in your life is a lesser sacrifice for him. It's not like he's got to weigh whether or not it's worth it. He already made the commitment. So he's saying, so, so what, can anything stand against you? No. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who could accuse you? Well, everybody. But it's God who justifies. Who, who is he who condemns you? It's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Look, who could accuse you? Satan could accuse you. Who could condemn you? Satan could try and condemn you. And, but, oh, by the way, remember, it's Christ who died, and on top of that is risen. It's one who paid for your sins and also conquered your sins, who's at the right hand of God, who's making intercession for us. It's Christ who says that argument, that condemnation, that accusation doesn't hold water. Leave. It, it is Christ who can tell the devil that person is righteous. It's not that I'm covering it up or hiding it. It's, no, I, I made them righteous. I paid the full price. You have nothing you can bring at this point that will diminish that. What, verse 35, sorry, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. What can separate us? Nothing. It doesn't matter if this, you know, if, 
if the Spirit of God is dwelling in us, what can separate us? Nothing. It does not matter what comes against us or who comes against us or what happens to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 37, Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just winning. Right? We're not winning. We're smoking it. And it's not because of what we're doing. It's because of what Christ is done. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the answer to how do you walk in victory in life and how do you walk through suffering in life. It is that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Right? There is nothing that can separate you. But there's also a warning here in chapter 7. There's nothing that can separate you, that can come between you and God. But you can pull yourself back. You can turn it into, hey, here's what I do. Here's what I, here's how I run the show. And so, you know, Romans 7 is, is a frustrating chapter to read in a, in a very real sense because we live in it so often and we know so many people who just seem stuck there. But Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If the spirit dwells in you, the Spirit dwells in you. And if the Spirit dwells in you, there's life. And so, what are we looking at? It's a question. Does the Spirit dwell in you? Right? We're not talking about, are you saved? Because it's possible, like in Acts 19, to be totally saved, but to not have the Spirit dwelling in us. And so, you can, you know, people can get all tied up over which term is the best way to describe this. Who cares? I don't care if you want to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or being nice, or walking you know, according to the word of God, it doesn't matter. Is the spirit of God dwelling in you? And that's what we need to ask ourselves. And so I don't want to, you know, make it awkward or anything, but if you can't answer that question, you need to be able to. And the spirit of God is not something that you have to go through a ritual to obtain. It is a gift. John, in the Last Supper, Jesus talks over and over again about the gift of the spirit. He says, I'm in, it's better for you guys that I leave here physically because then I'm going to send the Spirit and He's going to give you power, right? Do you have power? Do you have righteousness in your life? If you don't have the Spirit of God, you need to find somebody and, and let them pray with you for the Spirit of God to dwell in you. And, it, and I'm not going to make any kind of promises about, hey, here's what, you know, you'll know it's real when uh, you experience this sign or this happened. No, 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 no. Uh, the Lord works we're all individuals, and the Lord, in his graciousness, treats us all like individuals, right? So it may not be something exciting. It might be, and I won't discredit that. It might be pretty chill. That's cool, too. But if you don't know, you need to know. And it's a free gift. Remember, it's not, he already sent us his son, right? Nothing else can compare to that. So he's offering it to us. If you walk out of here tonight and you don't know that the Spirit is dwelling in you. That's going to be your call. But don't walk out of here without knowing that. And so find somebody. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray with you. Get a couple people, right? I want the Spirit of God to dwell in me in fullness. Because Romans 7 is 
depressing as all heck to live through, right? There is nothing more frustrating than having to live every day with the awareness of how weak you are. There is nothing more invigorating than getting to live every day with an awareness of how strong God is. And so that's what we've got. So let the Spirit of God dwell in you and then watch him give life to your mortal bodies and then see what happens. It'll be the most incredible thing any of us ever get to do with our lives here on earth. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of your spirit that we can stand here tonight and and just want to receive it and know that it's a free gift, that you will deliver it to us. God, we pray that that your spirit would come upon us, that we wouldn't be held back maybe by fears of, of what we think that might look like or preconceptions, but that we would just be open. God, we want to walk in victory. We want to see you move in our hearts and our lives. We want to be able to say whatever your will is, so be it. And so we pray for the, for the fresh, constant, overwhelming filling of your Holy Spirit, that you would fall upon us, God, that we would not leave here the same as we came in, but that we would be part of the journey that you're inviting us to. So have your way with us. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. Fill us and give us life and victory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.